0: So we are in 1 Kings chapter 14, starting in verse 21, and we're going to go through 16. Um, Today we're going to look at nine different kings. Um, And as we're looking at them, we'll see, obviously, because if you know anything about the book of Kings, a lot of negative examples. Um, There is one good one. Uh, But what I want to do is read one little uh, excerpt from this and it'll kind of be an emblematic illustration of what most of these kind of write-ups about the king look look like so if you have a bible stand with me as we read god's word starting in chapter 15 verse 1 we're going to start in 15one we we're just going to read about this one king the second one uh and we'll we'll pray and get started chapter chapter 15 verse 1 now the 18th year of king jeroboam the son of nebat abijam Began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makah, the daughter of Absalom. He walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as God, as the heart of David, his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. Because David... Did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was a war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did are, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles and the kings of Judah. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam and Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And I pray that as we uh, study it this morning, we look at these nine different kings, that you would be kind and gracious to us. You'd send your Holy Spirit and teach us um, to understand not just narrative about kings that lived some 3000 years ago, but more than that, that Holy Spirit, you would point us to Christ and that our hearts would Be filled with affection for Jesus as we see negative negative examples of people um, and that we learn from them. And that we want to, um, of course, make appropriate changes in our own life as we see these negative examples. But more than anything, that we don't rely on ourselves just to make changes in our life to try to live holy lives for you. But instead, that all of our hope is on Christ and the righteousness, the alien righteousness that's been imputed to us. And that we would depend and trust wholly upon that and be thankful for it and live our lives um, in such a way that give you honor and give you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, there's a couple things that I want to point out before we get started just to help us understand what's going on as we look at these nine different kings. Uh, the excerpt I read in 15.1 is kind of the normal way that all of these kings, with the exception of Asa, are introduced to us. Short little Wikipedia type entries, uh, are given on these little Kings different than the Chronicles. And that's, that's done intentionally. They're writing these little short entries, um, in that, in that kind of short, like here they were, and they all have the same kind of, um, pattern. Here he was, he reigned for this amount of time he did, or he didn't. Most of them, he did not walk, uh, before the Lord correctly. And one little thing about his life. And then he died. He died this, he he died after serving this number of times. And now he sleeps with us. And then it's always, don't you, if you want to know more, you can read in the Chronicles. And then, and then he slept. And that's kind of like the little pattern of all of them and the pattern. And it's short, and you could ask yourself, And we should ask ourselves, why is it written that way? Why is there these kind of longer summations of their lives in the Chronicles, but in the Kings, this particular writer writes it in this particular way. The reason why is because um, the writers wanting us to understand that these Kings are with the exception of Asa that we're going to look at all pretty terrible Kings and that there shouldn't be much time given to them. He's wanting, as he writes to help you see these little short, wikipedia style entries um that are just you know a couple couple lines a few verses and that's it they're wanting you to say that's all they deserve because of of the nature of just how bad of a king they were he's going to stay in the same basic formulaic outline saying these kings were so bad that's all that they get and the way that i'm telling you about them is so that you won't even spend much time on them you just okay he, he did this he was bad bad go the next thing because i don't need to know more much more about him that's that's what he's wanting to go for now um, the second thing I want you to see is what we read the reason why I picked the one we read is because he intentionally in fifteen four makes sure that our minds and our hearts are not just focusing on these bad Kings, but instead verse four, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him. That's the one good out of the nine Asa. And so he's wanting us to see in these pattern into the North and to the South of bad King after bad King. The Lord is still good keeping his promise from second Samuel seven, that there would be a coming Messiah. And there's this lamp of Jerusalem that is the coming Messiah Jesus. And so he's wanting us all to continue as we see kind of bad King after bad King after bad King. And we're saying, what's going to happen to Israel? They're so terrible. They have such bad Kings. Is anything going to happen? Good. Remember the Lord's faithful and there is a lamp in Israel. There is a lamp in Israel, in Jerusalem, and that that coming Messiah is coming. And so as we see bad king after bad king, he's pointing us to say, don't just concentrate on these things. You can certainly learn from them, and we will, but keep your mind set on the king of kings who's coming. Next thing that I want you to notice is, uh, as we're going through a list of nine kings that are, that are bad, um, except for one, uh, there there is a way to preach this in such that we look at it and we say, bad king, here's what he did, bad, learn from it. Bad king, here's what he did, bad, look at it. One good, and then bad king, here's what he did. And so I'm going to preach that, and and, and so we see it. I mean, that's the text is laid out this way. The Lord wants us to look at it this way. And so we'll see eight different kind of negative examples where it, here's something, and maybe we have something like that residing in our own heart. We don't want that. Let's let's put that to death, let's get rid of that, let's live differently than that, etc. But that whole presentation of looking at bad kings as navy of examples is still very law based and so it can lead you to think well what i need to really do and what god wants me to do is just try harder and be better and in a sense of course sanctification is our job And coupled with God, that we do those things. But ultimately, um, I don't want us to, as we leave uh, this text and as we finish, to just think in law terms. But we also remember uh, that the law was given to us to show us that we can't do that. And so our only hope is the gospel. Our only hope is Christ, uh, the Savior given to us, the Messiah, the lamp of Jerusalem given to us, who actually gives us our righteousness. And so as we're going through that, those are some of the preliminary things I want us to make sure that we have in our minds that there are certain absolute life life applications that we can make from these bad Kings. But ultimately this text and all texts are um, given to us, not just so you can adjust and make little shifts in your life to be better, but ultimately for us all to point our hearts and mind and souls and hope to Jesus, because he's the only hope we have. Now, um, we're going to look as we look at this, uh, three Kings and then six, nine in a row. The first three Kings are to the South and Judah. The next six are to the North in. um, in Israel. And so, uh, if you're familiar with baseball, um, in baseball, you want to put your best hitter third uh, because your first two guys get on. If they get out, the next guy will get on. If they do, if they get on, you can hit it and you get some RBIs. So, your best hitter is always the third hitter. And so, what we're going to do here, in this particular case, this rider has decided to. Um, retroactively think of baseball lineups for us and give us nine, nine Kings. And the third one is the best. And in baseball, especially in the national league, uh, your, your worst hitter hits ninth and here the worst King is ninth. So, um, that's something that, that one of the commentators I saw pointed out and I thought it was fun. I I switched it around a little bit, Uh, not the order, but uh, some of the way he did it, but nevertheless, it's a good way to think of it. And hopefully it's a device that's going to make you at least pay attention. If not, maybe remember, but, um, uh, let's, uh, let's look at these. And as the rider hasn't spent much time on these, neither will I, I'll spend some time on Asa number three, our good hitter. And, uh, as we're going through the other eight kind of negative examples, I've been reading some biography this week. And so I'm going to bring in some, some biography of actually some, some, I think, positive examples. But as the writer doesn't spend much time on these, neither will I. I'll, I'll, I'll make the kind of easy application and sometimes a little bit of a deeper application of the negative example that perhaps you and I have in our own hearts, and our own lives that we should learn from. But ultimately, uh, we'll point, the text points us to Christ. So here we are looking at verse 21 of chapter 14. And we'll start with the first one. This is number one, uh, Kings of Judah. This is to the South. Mr. Rehoboam, our first one's Rehoboam hitting, uh, leading us off. And he's Mr. Chameleon. They all have nicknames. That's just for you to kind of know something about them. Uh, so Mr. Rehoboam, the the son of Solomon reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old and began to reign. He reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord chose out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And then it tells us this, His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonite. Now, that's verse 21. That's right there in the beginning. Uh, In this little section on Rehoboam, look with me down at the the last verse of Rehoboam, verse 31. And remember, Nama, the Ammonite. And he says this in verse 31. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers. This is after his little Wikipedia entry is over. Slept with his fathers and he's buried with his fathers in the city of David. His His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonite. And Abajim reigned in his place. So the next guy came. So, but we have these bookend information of Nema the Ammonite. So when you're studying the Bible, this is important. Bookends are always there for a reason. Bookends teach. That's, that's what they do. If you want to know a fun word, they're called inclusios in theological world, but you don't need to know that. We can just call them bookends and they always are there for a purpose. They teach. And so what they're there for is to understand the middle. The bookends help you understand what's going on in the middle. Like in the middle, he was a, he was an idolater. He was, he was not a good King. Bookends help us understand. So let's read about him. Verse 22, Judah, uh, did what was evil in the side of the Lord. That's where he's, where he's reigning. They did what was evil. What was it? They provoked them to jealousy, their sins. They committed more than all their fathers had done. For they built for themselves high places and pillars and a shirim on every hill and under green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes uh, in the land. They did according to the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, shh. Shishak, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away the shields of gold that Solomon made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the doors of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord and the guards carried them, he brought them back and forth to the guard room. Now the rest of, and he tells you, that's it. So we see here that with these bookends or the inclusio of Nema Na- the Ammonite, we can see those things uh, that are happening in the middle, that ne- namely that he was an idolater and he built, he built up places of idolatry, uh, high places of Asherim, etc. That's because his mother was Nema the Ammonite. Solomon was his dad. Solomon was commanded by God. Don't marry outside of Israel. If you do, that consequence will take place further in generations. And the the paganism that's brought into your family will continue to happen. And so Solomon disobeyed God and did it. And he married out of many name of the Ammonite. And so his mother, name of the Ammonite and Solomon passed on this pagan religion to him, and so he, Rehoboam carried it on, and so thus he was an idolater. In Second Chronicles, it says of him, he did not determine in his heart to seek the Lord. And so as these bookends teach us that their idolatry, Solomon's idolatry and his mother uh, Nama, their idolatry continued into his life. He he chose not to be different and follow the Lord wholeheartedly. Instead, he chose to just be a chameleon, just like his parents, conforming to the rampant sexual sin around him, conforming to the... Uh, culture around him. He was just a chameleon himself. He didn't know who he was. He just conformed to the people's sin around him and became like them. And even worse, as the king, he led the people of Judah into this depravity. One of the themes of kings is so goes the king, so goes the people. And so as bad kings lead the people of God, Israel follow in that. And so that's a double portion of, of judgment that's given to them for this. Um, And so he was a chameleon. He was a conformer. And so we should not be like that. If we come from idolatrous families, then we should choose to not determined in our heart to not seek the Lord, but we should. We don't conform to the culture and the rampant sin around us that may have been taught to us from our families or just things around us and our environments. It's not that we don't be friends with them. Of course we are. But nevertheless, we don't chameleon ourselves to the culture. But instead, as Romans twelve two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, What is good and acceptable and perfect. Christians are not chameleons to the rampant sinful culture around them. Instead, we know who we are, our identities in Christ. And we know whose we are, that we're possessed by him. And so we live differently. Not chameleons to the culture, but instead distinct from the sinful culture around us. Again, as I said, as we're going through this, there will be law. But again, I'm going to finish with gospel, I promise you. So don't feel like, well, there's one thing I got to work on. Of course, we all got things we got to work on. But nevertheless, it's all because of Christ. That's all he gets. We keep moving. The writer doesn't want us to think about these guys much. And we're not going to. So next, we go to, as we just read, Abijam. Abijam. Um, he is kind of the middle of the road, Mr. Not as bad as, as the other guy. So it's going to tell us, as you, as you read about him, that he's not as good as David, but he's not as bad as his dad. So he's kind of right there in the middle, uh, which again, that's not, that's not our goal as Christians. We don't look and say, well, I'm not as bad as this guy, so I'm okay. Um, So it says this about him. In the 18th year, the king of Rehoboam, the son of Nabat, Abijam, um, began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother was Machah, the daughter of Absalom. He walked in the sins um, that, that his father did before him as Jeroboam. His heart was not truly to the Lord. This phrase his heart was not wholly true to the Lord as the heart of his David, his father David, is literally his heart was not whole with Yahweh his God like his father. Um, what God wants for us is to have a heart whole towards him and this was not the same thing that was going on to Abijam. In the Chronicles it does say So he's not like David, but it also tells us that he's not as bad as his dad, Jeroboam in the Chronicles, uh, chapter 13, verse 14, he was going out to battle and he cried out to the Lord for help. That's actually pretty rare. We would think that's what they're supposed to do. Israel, they go out to battle. Am I going to win? Could you help me? Yes, you're going to win. Yes, I'll help you. But sometimes they would just go without asking. It tells us in the Chronicles that he cried out. Now it could just be that he cried out because it was genuine or it could be because it was, he was just desperate and he didn't want to lose. Uh, nevertheless, we don't know that, but he is in all accounts better than his dad. He is in just morally speaking better than his dad Rehoboam. Not as good as David, but better than Rehoboam. And that's not saying much. He's Mr. Not as bad as the other guy in the middle of the road, but believers in Christ, this is not who we want to be. That's not what we're striving for is just to be better than the guy that sits beside us, right? Um, instead, we're not called to just be better than those around us, um, Christ calls us to holiness. Christ calls us to Christ likeness, and so our our striving and sanctification. Now, it's all predicated on your justification that you have been given the righteousness of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is inside of you. But nevertheless, as you strive for in d- sanctification, we're not to be like Abijam, just not as bad as the other guy. Instead, we're to be like our King. We strive towards to be like King Jesus. That's all he gets. No more. Next. Asa, he's, he's different. Asa is the third hitter. He's the best hitter of the, of the, of the team. And you're actually going to spend some time on him because he's a pretty good guy compared to all the others that we read. This guy was bad. This guy was bad. This guy was bad. This guy was bad. Asa said something that said differently about him. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on him starting in verse nine In the 20th year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. This is to the south. And he reigned, look at this, 41 years. That's a long time. This is, this is clearly a blessing from the Lord. The good kings reign longer. 41 years in general statements. 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Absalom. And you're thinking, wait a second, I just read that in verse 2. How's that possible? Likely, he's just saying it's really his grandmother uh, was Maka. But you know how they, in Israel, sometimes they attribute fatherhood to grandfatherhood. Nevertheless, you know what I mean. So uh, this is likely his grandmother. More on that in a minute. Verse 11. And watch this. This is a different declaration of this king compared to the rest. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. This is what he did. He put away all the milk called prostitutes out of the land and removed the idols um, that his father had made. So he kills the idols, the idolatry, and he kills the rampant sexual uh, sin. He also removed Makkah. his mother from being queen mother um, because she had made an abominable image for the Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it in the Brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. That's the one little thing he didn't do. That's something he should have done. If you remember in previous uh, sermons, uh, this was set up in the high place. They had set up priests in the high places and it wasn't supposed to be here. It was supposed to be in Jerusalem. But nevertheless, he didn't remove it. but, But the writer still says, nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord God, to the Lord, that's Yahweh, all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and and his own sacred gifts, silver, gold, and vessels. And so Asa, in verse 11, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his David, his father, had done in verse fourteen. The heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days. In Chronicles, it's fourteen 4, 2 Chronicles fourteen four. It says more about Asa. It says he commanded Judah. This is the kingdom he oversaw. He commanded them to seek the Lord. So not only was he doing, he was actually telling the people of God, "Hey, you should seek the Lord too, the God of your fathers." And he even told them, "You should keep the law." And keep the commandments. So he was a good king. The, Lord, the writers tell us that he did what was right. His heart was wholly true. So he did what was right. His heart was wholly true. It's, it's not just his outward actions, but his heart as well. And he actually told the people of God that they should seek the Lord God. And have their heart right. And also follow the law and commandments. So he's a good king. He's the only one we'll see that's good. As a matter of fact, outside of Hezekiah and Josiah... Um, no higher praise is given to those two guys, but a lot of good praise is given to Asa. Um, therefore he had a deep desire to live out as a King and, um, as a good King, as a follower of Yahweh. And he had personal godliness, um, as his, one of his desires, personal godliness is this. I think this is something for us to remember. Personal godliness is living before the eyes of God with loving faithfulness to God. So Personal holiness, not not public holiness. That's living before the eyes of others. Personal holiness, personal godliness, living before the eyes of God, not just others with not. I have to do it because God says because it's the law, but instead with loving faithfulness to God. I want to be holy like Christ because I love God. And as an act of worship, I want to live my entire life for him. If you see Asa, he does this. He, he does physically what we as Christians now are commanded to do spiritually. We are commanded to put to death the idols of our heart. He does this physically in verse 12. You can see it. He put away all the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. He literally puts to death the idols of the people at that time and destroys them all and gets rid of them. This is what we're commanded to do. Colossians 3, 5, Romans 8, 13, with our own heart. Y'all, he kicked his own grandma out. Like he said, grandma, you made a bad image. You're out of here. Add the queen, whatever, you're gone. You can see as he says it in verse 13, he removed Maka, his, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made abominable image. Like, grandma, stop, seriously, get out of here. I can't believe this. And he, personal holiness was so important to him that he literally kicked his grandma out. Which is awesome, I think. Um, but likely, just in in straight human kind of relational terms, this cost him. You know, you kick grandma out. That's probably going to going to cost you and your family. Um, and and following Christ wholeheartedly, pursuing personal godliness can also cost us. It costs you maybe relationships. You don't want that, but you still. Pray for them, go after them and say, no, no, no! follow Christ, become a believer in Jesus. But it also can just cost you what seemingly might be for you. The, the fun things in life, personal holiness costs us. But nevertheless, for him, he was a seeker of the Lord. He sought after the Lord. A verse that I think kind of identifies Asa's life, which uh, is something that we can live out. James 4, eight says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he would draw near to you. That's what was going on in Asa's life. And that's what we are supposed to have in our lives. Take the positive example of Asa. Seek after the Lord. Draw near to God and he would draw near to you. Now, Asa wasn't perfect. Asa wasn't perfect. In 16 through 24, he gets he gets more ink than the others because he actually is a good king. And you hear of this, this um, story where basically, humanly speaking, he, he's warring with um, Basha. And as he's warring with Basha, he, he, he kind of does... You can see in verse 19, um, he tells them that they have a covenant and he tells them, go and break your covenant with Basha, the king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And so he, he ends up saving his people in some way. But this, this thing that he did, um, when you read it, humanly speaking, you think, well, this is actually a, a good battle strategy to, to defeat the foe Basha. I guess this is seemingly... Pretty smart to do. Um, But uh, if we just read that, then we would be kind of left like, I don't know, is that good or bad? But the chronicler tells us, as he writes, he sends out a rebuke towards him. This is 2 Chronicles 16. He sends out a rebuke towards Asa for this particular thing, saying, um, and all that you did, here's what you didn't do. In 1 Chronicles 16, 7 and 8, he says, You didn't depend on Yahweh. You humanly thought about what you should do and your own strategies. And you, you told people to stop doing that. And you, you did something human speaking, which was a smart little strategy, but the chronicler rebukes him and says, you didn't depend on Yahweh. You didn't seek the Lord in this particular moment when you should have. Now, ultimately that doesn't mean he was bad because we have the writer telling us in verse 14, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all of his days, all of his days. And so even the good King, who has good things still wasn't perfect because there's only one perfect king and that's jesus and so even as we look at king asa what we should take from his life with this little one mishap you could call it that's recorded i'm sure he had much more because we're all sinners is that we should all strive to seek the lord with all of our days never being comfortable each day with where we are but instead every morning we seek the lord afresh every morning we seek the lord afresh and anew we go to his word. We read his word. We repent of sin that we're aware of in our own lives or that people point out. And we ask him for this day's measure of the Holy Spirit that we need in order to live a life of worship and obey him. And this is what we should do. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the one good king. And now we keep going. We're moving from the south to the north. We're moving from Judah to Israel. You can go ahead and put up D to number four to Nadab. He was, a, he was like his terrible father. So go to verse 25. Nadab, the son of Jerusalem, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, the king of Judah. He reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father, w- who was not, his father was not Asa. It was Jeroboam and his sin in which he made towards Israel. So he walked in the way of the father. He was not a good king. He wasn't, he didn't rule very long. He was only there for two years. One commentator says this. Um, about Nadab and kind of the, the environment, even just over these short little two years that he set up. Persons who lead nations um, to embrace uh, empty, sinful religious and ethical systems often in that nation create an environment of violence and greed and oppression. Violence and greed and oppression. This is the system that Nadab, terrible like Mr. Terrible, like his father, set up an environment of violence, greed, and oppression, and as believers, we're called to live the opposite. We're called to strive to do the opposite of these things. So as I said, uh, I've been reading some biography this week. And so I want to give two different bio- biographical examples that are kind of the opposite of um, some of these kings that we're looking at. Biography number one, opposite of this guy, I think. Um, we're called to live the opposite of violence, greed and oppression like this particular person. If I ever said to you, um, we're Baptists. I don't know if you know where Baptist church we are, Southern Baptists. And so if I said to you, hey, um, do you know the first Baptist that's in recorded history to leave his own homeland? Most Baptists up until this point had always just stayed in their homeland and preached the gospel there. But there was, if you trace back, the very first Baptist that ever left their homeland and actually went to foreign soil to preach the gospel. If you're a Baptist history nerd, then you would say, "Yes, I know who that is. It's Adoniram Judson." I know that you're thinking that. So, I'm just filling in the blanks for you. You would say, "It's Adoniram Judson. He was the first American to leave and go to Burma." And I'd say, "No, no, no, it's not Adoniram Judson. You're like, "I knew that actually because you said first Baptist ever not American, so it's got to be William Carey." It was William Carey. William Carey is the one that left in 1793 England to go to India to preach the gospel, the first Baptist to leave their homeland to go to foreign soil. And I'll say, well, that's been the thought for a long time that it was William Carey, but it's not William Carey either. Instead, it's neither of those, Adder and Iron Jumpson and William Carey. It's someone that maybe you haven't heard of. Um, I was pointed to this this week by Ken Watson, I was having Ken Watson, and he said, the first Baptist pastor. Uh, first Baptist to ever leave their homeland and go to a foreign soil was a guy by the name of George Lyle. And I looked it up and I bought the book and I read it, uh, his biography. And you'd say, I've never heard of George Lyle. And I'd say, yes, there's probably reasons for that, but we'll talk about that in a second. In 1782, 11 years before what most people thought was the first Baptist William Carey in 1782, 11 years before William Carey left to go to India, George Lyle left America to go to Jamaica to preach the gospel. He was the very first Baptist to leave their homeland to go and preach the gospel in foreign soil. And his story is absolutely amazing on a lot of reasons. Um, First, because George Lyle was a slave. He was converted at the age of 23 and he wrote of his conversion. He said this, I saw my condemnation in my own heart and I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell. Only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which caused me to make intercession for Christ, with Christ for the salvation of my soul, for the salvation of my poor immortal soul. I full well recollect it. And I requested at that moment of salvation for the Lord to give me a task. He said, I requested my Lord and Master to give me work. I didn't care how quote unquote mean it was, only that I could try to see how good I would be able to do the task. Well... After he was baptized, his owner gave him his freedom, seeing his gifting at preaching, gave him his freedom so he could fulfill the calling on his life to preach the gospel. And for a couple years, he preached the gospel um, very faithfully in all the slave quarters in Savannah and even moved Savannah, Georgia, and moved up into South Carolina some. And many slaves came to Christ as a result of his powerful preaching. And here's where it gets amazing. It's not just that... uh, it's not what we would have thought, that it was actually a slave that became the first Baptist missionary ever to leave their homeland to go to foreign soil. Here's where it gets even more awesome. And why it's the contrast of violence, greed, and environment of sowing um, violence and greed and oppression. But instead, um, the opposite of that. Total servanthood. Here's where it gets amazing. George Law's owner that had freed him had died in the Revolutionary War and they arrested him. Because they thought he wasn't free and they threw him in jail until he was able to to produce his papers to show that he was free, which caused him to want to leave. Um, And so being free, he took his wife and his four children and went to Jamaica. And when he got to Jamaica, he made himself a slave again in Jamaica as an indentured servant to be able to live there, to pay off a debt, to earn some money. And after he made himself a slave again... He left the indentured servanthood as a free man now with money and was able to go as a free man and preach the gospel in Jamaica. But in order to do it, he had to enslave himself to earn enough enough money. And this is why it's so contra um, what we would think. A slave who was set free made himself a slave and servant again to preach the gospel. And this is what we're to do. We are to truly take up the role of servant in every way. To preach the gospel. Now being free, he was filled with compassion by the wretched condition of the slaves in Jamaica. He formed a church with just four people and preached to the poor people there in Jamaica and all the slaves. During only eight years of ministry there, he baptized 500 people. This is what it looks like to walk in the opposite direction of violence, greed, and oppression in that environment. Literally, out of love, you make yourself a literal, a literal servant to the people around you in order to preach the gospel to them so that they can be free spiritually. This is what George Lyle did. And this is why he is, I think, an unbelievable um, opposite example of this king of Israel, Nadab. Moving on to Basha. Basha the boring, who hits fifth. In the third year, the king uh, of Asa, Basha, the son of Ahijah, began to reign in Israel. He reigned for 24 years, but he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of Jeroboam, in which a sin was made towards Israel. And then in verses 1 through 4, you have this uh, prophet Jehu come to him and give him um, words of rebuke. In verses 1 through 4, in the word of the Lord uh, came to Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Basha And he said to him, since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader of my people, Israel, and you've walked in the way of Jeroboam and made my people sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house and I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs will eat them. And anyone who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat them. And then the normal kind of entry. Now the rest of his books what he did, they're all in Chronicles. And then he slept with his fathers. And then just to make sure, uh, he finishes with more prophetic rebuke in verse seven. He did it in verses one through four. Here's some prophetic critique. I'm going to, I'm going to finish with one more in verse seven. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanai, against Basha in his house, both because of the evil that he had done in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger and the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. So Basha, and we're just going to call him Basha the Boring, because... Uh, he lives a pretty boring life. He, he doesn't do anything different than anybody around him. He just continues on in the exact same thing. He assassinates the king, Nadab, before him, the previous king. Out of nine verses that the Bible actually gives to his entire life, six of them, am I reading that right? One, two, three, four, five. Five of them are critique, prophetic critique about his life. That's not good. Um, because as, as Dale Davis says, this godlessness that he lives in and that he's in the pattern of living in like every other King, it's just dull. It's boring. Godlessness is dull and boring and his life is dull and boring. If there's anything that this short narrative teaches as it repeats the same kind of nature in which all these Kings live that are in, in your own experience teaches you is that, um, and this is true. Basha was boring because sin is ultimately boring and dull. He didn't do anything different than anybody else. And then what they had been doing, he kept in that exact same vein, living a boring, sinful life. In contrast, Jesus is never boring. Jesus is infinitely wonderful and never, ever actually stops teaching us more and more and more and more. About himself. Just think about this. I've been teaching the youth on Sunday nights, and I just was trying to help them understand the unbelievable significance about Jesus. This is, I think, just astounding. We only have three years of recorded history of Jesus's life. That's it. I mean, we have his birth, barely anything. We have that one little time at twelve where he ran away, and he find him in the in the in the temple, right? But everything that we really have written about Jesus was three years. Think about who right now the most most popular person in, that's ever lived in the world. And the youth were like Hitler. I'm like, why well, would you think of Hitler? But just think of like think of like think of like people that have been mentioned in the world uh, as like of all people that have ever lived, humanly speaking. This is one of the most popular people ever. There's a lot of people we can think of. <clears throat> biographies written on those people cover their whole life. They cover from their birth to their death and tons, and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and people have written about them, right? All we have is 3 years of Jesus. 3 years. More ink has been spilt about this man Jesus than anybody else ever. Which just show, and he lived 2000 years ago. There's no video. There's no there's no nothing like that. It's just amazing to think. He was poor. He wasn't rich luke nine uh, 59 whatever it is sixty fifty seven foxes of the whole foxes have holes, birds in nests, uh, have, birds have nests, the Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. so he owned his clothes that 's it. He owned nothing, unbelievably poor, and yet he shaped all of human history, the calendars around him. He is the most unboring person ever. and so sin is boring. Jesus is not. He is absolutely not. Read the Gospels. If you just want to not be bored by Jesus, just start with Matthew and read it all the way through. And then go to Mark and read it all the way through. Go to Luke, read it all the way through. Go to John, read it all the way through. And then go back to Matthew and read all, and r- rinse and repeat. I mean, it's unbelievable the things he did. It's unbelievable. Sin's boring. Christ is not. Next one. Elah. He's the drunk king. He's the drunk king. Uh, and we'll make some pretty obvious uh, applications, but I think there's a deeper thing. Verse 16, 8, the 26th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, began to reign over Israel. In Terza, he reigned for two years. But his servant Zimri, commander of the half of chariots, conspired against him. And when, it was at, and when he was at Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, uh, Arza. Um, It was over his household in Terza. Zimri came and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, the king, and he reigned in his place. So then Zimri took over. So Elah, the drunk king, he only got to rule rule two years because um, the next king, Zimri, actually killed him. The way you become king is obviously kill the king. Um, But Elah, and we could make an obvious, quick, little, simple application, right? don't be drunk, right? The Bible in Ephesians 5.18 says, it's a sin to be drunk ever. Never be drunk. As a matter of fact, don't be drunk, but instead... And don't be filled with a foreign substance that causes you to live in such a terrible way and make terrible decisions. Ephesians five eighteen. but instead be filled with the spirit. So don't be filled with alcohol, which causes you to live wrong. Be filled with the spirit, which causes you to live right. Something foreign that comes into your body, just like both, which changes your mind. Instead of living debaucherous life, live a righteous life. So, I mean, that's obvious. Like that's the, that's the obvious application. But more importantly, I think that there's something deeper that he's warning against, which is just um, immaturity. And likely was just massively immature. And it's a warning for us as believers when we become believers and we're babes in Christ or we're adolescents in Christ that we don't remain there, that we grow out of spiritual adolescence. We shouldn't just be on milk still. We should be eating meat, as it says in Hebrews. And so the American church, especially, is the West for sure, is filled with immature adolescent Christians that just aren't growing up in the faith. Maybe they're not willing, but they certainly aren't. I'm not saying we are, but I'm saying the West is certainly filled with it. And so we as believers should want to not be like this. We should not want to be spiritual adolescents. We should want to be spiritual adults. We should want to be mature Christians that really live lives of sacrifice. Not just a frat boy like Ela. which gives us to biography number two. This is a man who did live As a mature Christian willing to sacrifice for others. This man was named Bill Wallace. He was a doctor in Tennessee and chose to stay single so that he could be a missionary. He knew that he could be married. He actually had someone he could have been married to, but chose not to because he knew that it would be able to give him uh, more ministry opportunities. And so he was a medical missionary to China and he left in 1936, to go be a medical missionary in China for 15 years. Now, this is if you, you know anything about history? This is during World War II, definitely a dangerous time to be over in Asia at this particular time. As many missionaries that were over there in this particular time, where there was lots and lots of turmoil, they were saying, "You need to get out of here, missionary. It's dangerous." And they're like, "Okay, let me get out of here because it's dangerous." And Bill Williams, uh, Bill Wallace said, "This is what I came for. I'm not leaving. I'm staying as a doctor." And as he was there, he served the Chinese people um, great. He was a surgeon. He worked and did many surgeries, healing, bringing both physical and, of course, preaching the gospel to them, spiritual healing to them. He was someone who was a mature Christian willing to sacrifice. Uh, As an emblematic kind of example, while he was there on one occasion, he was apportioned uh, as As a missionary, uh, a certain amount of rice that he could eat every day. And instead of it wasn't his excess, it was all of his rice that he would give to the nurses around him and the Chinese people there. So that they could eat. He was a very, very, very skinny, thin man. Not because necessarily genetics, probably so. But also because he just didn't eat. He barely ate any food and he would give away his food. And one time as he had done, given his apportioned rice to the nurses and the other Chinese people there. Someone later found him around the feeding tent at the trash can. Eating the burnt rice that they had thrown away because he was so hungry. He had given away all of his food. Even the excess food that he had. Because he was willing to truly live a life of sacrifice for the people that he was called to. This is the opposite kind of life as Elah. In December of 1950, the corrupt Chinese government arrested him because he was a Christian. And they tried to, say, tried to get him to say that he was a spy. And they wanted to confess that he was a spy. And for two months, he refused to do it. And they tortured him for two months until they eventually killed him in his cell. And he died at the young age of 43, single. And you say, well, that's a tragedy. And it's not a tragedy, not a tragedy at all. This is the kind of life that God is calling all of us to live as a sacrifice. This is what mature Christians look like. Not like Ela, not adolescence, but instead like Bill Wallace, William Wallace, which is pretty fun. Um, Danny Aiken, as he's writing this biography, he says this about Bill Wallace As he's killed in a cell and the Chinese government trying to cover up what had happened. There was no funeral service for Bill Wallace. The government officials wouldn't allow it. A shallow grave was dug. They nailed the coffin shut and they lowered it into the ground. The soldiers stayed until the burial was complete and they drove away from this very lonely unmarked grave. However, the people that Bill Wallace had spent time with cared for him deeply and loved him. And despite danger to themselves, friends of this kind, brave doctor collected enough funds for a small marker and lovingly built a small monument around over the solitary grave. And inscribed were seven single words that accurately captured this superlative servant of our savior for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what living as a mature, sacrificial Christian looks like, not like Elah, but as Bill Wallace the next king is Zimri. Zimri kills Elah and he takes over. Zimri's reign is very short. Verse 15. In and verse and, uh, 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned for seven days. Seriously, a flash in the pan. He's Mr. Flash in the pan. The troops were encamped against him in Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops were encamped and heard that Zimri had conspired as he has killed the king. Therefore, all Israel made Omri commander of the army, king over Israel in that day. Since he had king, killed the king, Zimri had killed uh, Elah, Omri going to go up and kill Zimri. And he's going to rule for seven days. And they went up there, basically went to his house and they burned it down and he died. Um, because of his sins, he committed doing evil on the side of the Lord, walking the way of Jeroboam. His sins committed making Israel a sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy made there are written in the book of Chronicles, etc. He lived seven days. Seriously, a flash in the pan. And so just a couple things for us to remember about this flash in the pan king. One little application, think I point we can make. Um, Tony Morita says, like the other kings, Zimri was just more interested in power than faithfulness to God. He wanted to be powerful, so he killed the king. It didn't last very long and it was over. As C.T. Studd says, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And maybe better, just like James says. Chapter four, verse 14. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Our lives are short. And so since they're short, we don't live just for our self-interest and our self-power like Zimri. Instead, we live to be faithful unto God. Next is Omri, who killed Zimri. Um, and his is a little bit of an interesting life. He actually had some skills. He had some leadership skills. Uh, I sound like Napoleon. He had skills. Uh, anyway, so the people of Israel, sorry, were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni. The other half followed Omri. Uh, and the people who followed Omni overcame the people that followed Timni, the son of Gibna. And Timni died and Omni became king. Uh, and the uh, 31st year of Asa of Judah, Amri began to reign over Israel and he reigned for, for 12 years, a decent amount of time. Six, he reigned over he, Here And here's some things that give us a little bit of understanding of how he was. He, he bought the hill of Samaria and Shemur for two reasons of talents. And he fortified the hill and he called the, the name of that city built on Samaria after the name of Shemra, the owner of the hill. So what we can see here is that um, Omni, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It tells us that in verse 25. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than all who were ever before him. So that's, that's terrible. Of all the kings that had ever lived before him, he did what was evil and he, he took it up a few notches. But um, unlike drunk Elah and the flash in the pan Zimri, Omni is around for 12 years... Moreover, he actually has some leadership skills. You can see he's doing some fortification. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, after he dies, the Assyrians that were enemies of Israel, the Assyrians referred to Israel. He was only there for 12 years, Omni. For a hundred years after he died, the Assyrians referred to all of Israel as the house of Omri. So he has skills. He has leadership skills. He did a lot. There's just not a lot written here. And that's the tragedy, is that he has a wasted life. He actually has the ability to be able to do some significant things for Yahweh. But instead of doing that and using his leadership skills for these 12 years, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did what was worse than any other kings before him. Dale Davis says this, he did a lot. The writer's not saying that he's ignorant of all of Omni's. Omri's achievements, he's just saying, the writer's just saying that they don't matter. What a waste. What a waste to have been able to do so many, humanly speaking, good things with leadership skills, and nevertheless, ultimately, none of them matter. And that's why he gets such a short little writing. Here's how you don't waste your life, like Omri Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. That's how you don't waste your life. You get your family around you, you get your resources around you and you maneuver and, and, and take all of the people that you love, that love Christ around you and all your resources and money, and you put it all towards the kingdom of heaven. That's how you don't waste your life because, um, living for yourself, using whatever level of gifting that you have, like Omri could be amazing. It could not be using it for yourself rather than for the Lord is just living ultimately a wasted life. So live and use all of the skills that the Lord gives you, um, for the kingdom of heaven, not for your own. And lastly, brings us to Ahab. Ahab is just awful. He's the wicked king. Um, If we thought that Omri was wicked, and he was, uh, he comes next, and he's even more wicked. You can see in the 39th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, ruled over Israel and Samaria, 22 years. So he was there for a while, and look what it says about him. Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, again, more than all who were before him. So he's even worse than... Than Omri, as a matter of fact, if you look at verse 33, look what it says. This is, this is, this is horrific. Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Not only was he worse than all the kings, not only did worse than, did worse things than all the kings. He actually provoked the Lord to anger more than all of the kings. Ahab was simply atrocious. He was just the worst. Um, He also married a wicked woman. You can see in verse 31 that he married. He took for his wife Jezebel. That's the Jezebel you know in the Bible is terrible. If anybody ever says, you know, someone's a Jezebel, it's not not a compliment. Um, And so she was also terrible. And both of them together were idolaters. Horrible idolaters. So much so that the Lord's anger was provoked like none other. Setting up Baals and Asherah. Ahab ultimately... Even though he was an idolater, his ultimate problem is listed for us right here in verse 34. Look at verse 34. In his days, Hillel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. So he does something at the cost of his own son. We don't know if this is abortion or what he did or if he just offered his firstborn son to a false god. He set up its gates at the cost of his young son, Sagub. He did it again. And then it says, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun." So uh, previous to this, Joshua had said, whoever does this, whoever um, builds up this, this wall of Jericho, whoever does this is breaking the Lord's commandment and he's going to be a terrible person. Ahab knows the old prophecy of old and yet does it anyway, even at the cost of his own children. That is, and this is what his problem was, a total disregard for the word of God. This was his big problem. Yes, he was an idolater. Yes, he was just simply wicked and atrocious, an awful person. But the main thing and the main reason why is he has a total disregard for the word of God. We should not. We should not disregard the word of God in our life. When the word of God has spoken to us and indicated things that we need to do differently or given us wisdom on how to live our life and ultimately points us to Jesus, our only hope, we listen and we receive it. Uh, We... We eat the word of God, as Jeremiah says. We treasure the word of God, as Psalms say. Um, We store up the word of God in our minds and hearts, as the Psalms say. So you read all this and you think to yourself, how in the world is Israel going to survive? Well, the story of Kings tells us that they're not going to survive. Um, But it also tells us, and this is why I started with this in 15.4. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord God gave them a lamp in Jerusalem. They won't survive, but ultimately, as we read in the New Testament, Israel does survive because the Gentiles are engrafted in and Israel one day will be ultimately saved all because of the promise made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So how will Israel survive? The better question is how will we survive? We will survive the same way Israel will survive. The only way that they'll survive is Jesus and the only way that we'll survive any of our sin is Jesus. All these kings are failures. Ultimately, even Asa was... Failure at some points, although he was a good king, but all the others are terrible kings and they point us ultimately to the one true king. And so I want to juxtapose each one of these kings to King Jesus. And so our hearts, hopefully, as you hear, this will be filled with love and adoration and affection for Jesus. Jesus was not a chameleon. Instead, he was the crucified savior. Jesus was not a middle of the road person Just trying to be better than one and not as good as the other. Instead, he walked the narrow road perfectly for us. Jesus didn't seek God wholeheartedly, half-heartedly. Instead, he sought his father to do his will wholeheartedly. Jesus was not like our first father, Adam. Instead, he was like our heavenly father, uh, father God, and lived out because he was God. He was perfect. Jesus was not boring. He was the most interesting person ever to live. Jesus was not selfish. Instead, he sacrificed himself even to the point of death on a cross. Jesus was not a flash in the pan. He is eternal and he will be worshipped forever and ever and ever. Jesus didn't waste his life. Instead, he lived the perfect life for us so that our lives aren't wasted. And by faith, we can receive forgiveness. So the right response for us as we read all of these things is, of course, to look at these king's lives and take kind of the negative example and say, this needs to change. This needs to change. And all that's important for us to think about. But ultimately, these verses point us, this section points us to King Jesus, our only hope. He is the the, uh, the one true king of kings. And therefore, as we read all this, these texts and all texts point us to Jesus, our only hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And we know that these kinds of verses uh, where they just list bad king after bad king can be daunting and can be repetitive and can be uh, in some ways kind of difficult to even get the the point of like, why are we seeing more bad kings? But ultimately, they they do show us things that we shouldn't do in our lives. But more than that, they point us to you because you are uh, the king of kings who gave his life for his people. We're just like the people of Israel, desperate for a good king, but we have one in the lamp of Jerusalem, the king of kings, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us, willing to go to the cross and die for us so that by faith we can be forgiven. Help us all repent of sin continually, examine our own hearts, start afresh with you every day, seek you in your word, beg the Holy Spirit to teach us to obey. But more than anything, Cause our hearts to want to live lives of worship for you because we just can't get over the fact that the King of the Kings, King of Kings, would come off the throne, become a baby, live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, and then provide for us eternal life forever. Let us never get over that. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.